Father, we come having sung the gospel, having put our eyes upon Christ. We come pleading for your presence, Holy Spirit, to help us as we come to thy word. We pray just a simple prayer, both the preacher and the listener, the hearer, pray and need the Spirit. And we pray, like the psalmist did, let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Come, Holy Spirit, open this difficult text, but powerful and helpful text to us for our good for the glory of Christ and the spread of the gospel to the nations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. How are you uh, able to tell if, if, if something is genuine? Like a golf club or a dollar bill. How are you able to tell? How do you know if you have and hold in your hands a real NBA basketball? Well, the size of it, the the weight is just right. It's got genuine leather, but it's also got into that leather a stamp, right, of the National Basketball Association. So you're holding a genuine NBA basketball. Think about, and we all would like to think about this one, think about a barbecue this summer. And I hope it doesn't offend anybody, what I'm about to say, but how do you know you're eating a real burger? <laughs> yep, yep, I shouldn't have used this one, I can tell already. Well, we could go to get the uh, really skinny, flat Costco burgers. Or we could have and make a big, thick, juicy patty with the real burger. And I think you can tell the difference when you begin to eat, which is the real deal. How can you tell a real friend versus a Facebook friend? Face-to-face fellowship. I can tell a real diamond versus a fake diamond. You look under that microscope, you look for imperfections and brightness and all of that. Here's what I'm trying to say. The real thing, the real deal, finds a way, has a way of showing itself, of manifesting itself. It always does. So, we come to our passage this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to that place. We come to our passage today in Luke chapter 6, 27 through 38, and we find that genuine disciples of Jesus Christ show themselves. Genuine discipleship manifests, it does. This is the whole point of the sermon of our Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Luke in chapter 6. 
the manifestation of genuine discipleship that Jesus Christ highlights is shocking. It is this. The evidence of genuine discipleship is supernatural love for one's enemies. Let's listen to this otherworldly love as we read the text again this morning. So hope you're there. Luke chapter 6. Let's start reading at verse 27 as we continue to unpack this incredible sermon that Jesus preached. Verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend back to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. 27 through 38 is all about love for one's enemies. So today we're going to look at the reality of love for enemies. We're going to try to answer the question, what is love for our enemies? From verses 27 through 31. Next week, we'll move on from the reality of love for the reason for love for our enemies. Why? Why do we love our enemies? And this will be found in verses 32 through 34. And then finally, we'll look at the refusal the refusal to love our enemies, and how does a lack of love for our enemies manifest itself? And that's found in verses 37 and 38. And as I have been praying for, for quite some time, having studied this passage out, I think this short sermon series on love for enemies 
is super providential in the life of Grace Community Bible Church. It really is. It's providential because of the culture in this world that we're living in and what we've been through and what we're going through in this world where we can be angry and even filled with hatred about some of the things that are going on. But it's also providential to speak about love for enemies because of not only conflicts in our world, but conflicts in our church. It's providential in the life of Grace Community Bible Church. Every one of these principles that we will unpack are meant to be lived out in the new covenant love ethic of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not for then. This is not for the millennial kingdom. This is for us today within the church. Very directly applicable to our lives. And I've been praying that these principles would be applied by the Holy Spirit and He would actually accomplish the truth of these passages in our lives. It's incredible and miraculous that he will do so, for this is impossible, what we will unpack here today. So first then, what is love for our enemies? What is that reality of love for our enemies? Look at verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Remember the sermon here, the sermon on, on the plain coming off the mountain that Jesus preaches, according to verse 17, he's preaching to a large crowd, a large crowd of disciples. These are would-be followers of Jesus Christ. He's preaching to disciples, a great crowd. Not all of them were genuine followers. Some of them were on the fence. Some of them were on the edge of decision. Some of them were confused. Some of them were under the thumb of the Pharisees. Not all of them were genuine disciples, but they were all interested, very interested in Jesus Christ. They were all hanging on his every word. And so Jesus wants us to discern discipleship, and that's what he did in verses 20 through 26. The blessed one the woe-filled one, which is the true disciple. He wants us to see about genuine discipleship. But no, look at verse 27. He says this, But I say to you who hear. Who is he talking about when he's talking about this section of his sermon? Well, the word but in verse 27 contrasts verses 24 through 26. So you have the woe-filled, they they are professing disciples, but they don't possess Jesus. And and he's saying, woe to you, and he says, but on contrast to that, I'm talking to the blessed ones now. I'm looking you in the eye. I speak to you disciples, you real disciples. I'm speaking to you who what? Who hear, who listen to the Word of God, who take it into their heart. And it resonates with one that their humility before God is going to manifest itself with love for enemies. And he's calling us to this reality in this place, this radical life that he has come to bring, to die for, and then when he sends his spirit to empower. 
He says, love your enemies. Love them. He's not trying to figure out if you're a disciple today. He's speaking to believers. Love your enemies. It's the words of Christ. Not just enemies, not the enemies. No, no, this is personal. Think of them right now. Your enemies. Your enemies. Love them. Now, there's a number of Greek words for love. This Greek word contains emotions to some degree. Certainly they all do. But this specific Greek word is a love of decision. This is a love of choice. This is a love of action. This is a love that considers others better than yourself. This is a love that stretches yourself out at great cost to you. This is not natural. This is not a natural affection. This is not warm fuzzies because you like the Vikings together. This is not that. This is not natural. This is not romantic love. This is not the love of of friendship. This is the love of choice, of volition, supernatural love. So this kind of love then is not triggered by unity and just something in common and wow, you're nice and cuddly and nice to me, so I'm nice to you. We're friends together. It's not that kind of love. This is agape love. This is the love of choice. This is unnatural to the world. This doesn't make sense. The world says it's foolish, and this is what Jesus says. If you're trying to figure this out, you want to know how you'll manifest yourself? You want to know what the evidence is that you're a true disciple? Love your enemies. And when the word enemies hit the ears of those who hear, they would have been shocked. They would have been shocked. Why? Because this was a a shocking command to people in the context of the first century in Israel, in the context of Judaism. Yes, they had heard it said in the law of Moses, Leviticus 19, verse 18, that one should love one's neighbor as oneself. But one's neighbor was one's neighbor. One's neighbor was one who had some unity in togetherness and even religious overlap in beliefs. It's not that Jesus was contradicting the law. The law was still there. Jesus takes that, the seed of the law, and he builds upon it. The new Moses comes along and he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he shocks them, love your enemy. It's radical. John MacArthur does well with this. Let me just quote him. Quotes, first century Judaism... First century Judaism was narrow, exclusive, intolerant, and hence largely loveless and condemning. Hatred of their enemies, especially Gentiles, but above all, the Roman occupiers, those nasty Romans. Hatred of their enemies was elevated to the status of of a spiritual 
virtue by the Pharisees and the scribes. And in fact, the, the medieval Jewish scholar Maeotides records the Talmud's maxim that you should not rescue a Gentile who fell into the sea. Don't rescue him. End quotes. So Jesus' words and this sermon would be absolutely mind-blowing to the Pharisees and the scribes and many of the would-be disciples of Christ. In fact, it would be unacceptable to many. But to you who hear, to those who hear, to the true disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, to those who've been born again by putting faith in the Messiah, that, that the, the new covenant love ethic would be born in them and the Holy Spirit would begin to work in them to produce obedience to this radical command to love their enemies. So we begin to define it, haven't we already? Got a little bit of a picture of love for enemies, but let's see how Jesus unpacks this. What is the reality of love for enemies here? What does it look like to love one's enemies? Well, we're going to look at the reality under two headings. We're going to look at love for enemies in action. So we're going to look at love's action, and then we're going to look at love's attitude. Two simple headings. First, love's action. What does love look like? First, these actions are stated by Jesus straight out, and then they're illustrated by Jesus. So let's look at um, the actions stated first in love's action, and there's three. Number one, love does good. You see, this isn't about feeling love. This is a love of choice. This is a love that manifests itself in action, which is what we've said about the actual Greek word. Number one, love does good. Do good to those who hate you. Immediately, we recognize the context of hatred in, in this context. The enemies would then be those who persecute and ostracize and insult and scorn your name as evil for the sake of Son of Man. That's at least part of that. Those who hate you for the sake of Christ. And love manifests towards them, towards your enemies. And it manifests not in warm fuzzies, but it manifests not in feelings necessarily, but it manifests in tangible, concrete actions. Do good to those who hate you, to those who are persecuting you. What's your action? Do good to them. What does that word good mean? It's a thoughtful activity to bring actual benefit to one's enemies. You think about it, you say, they don't like me, but I'm going to benefit them and in this way, and you tangibly do it. That's love for enemies. It overcomes, as Paul wrote in Romans 12, 21, it overcomes evil with good. In Holland in 1569, 1569, there's a man named Dirk Willemzoon. We'll just call him Dirk. Dirk Willemzoon was condemned to death because he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He was condemned to be burnt at the stake. 1569. Dirk somehow managed to escape. Can you see it? He manages to escape. He's escaping on foot. And he's running across a frozen lake on foot. And he was pursued by an officer across that frozen lake, but it was springtime. And if you know, we live in Minnesota. In springtime, the ice was patchy, thin, spotty in some places. And as Dirk ran across the lake, he could hear that ice crack under his footsteps. But somehow he had reached the other side safely. However, the pursuing officer who's going to arrest him so that he could be burned at the stake, didn't fare so well and hit a spotty portion of ice and broke through the ice and screamed out for help. No one could hear him cry except for Dirk, the fugitive that he had been hunting and pursuing. Willem Zoon, however, turned back across that dangerous ice, risked his life, extended his hand to his enemy, and God allowed him to save this man, this pursuer from certain death, and got him to the shore. However, the officer was very grateful, and he did not want this responsibility of bringing Dirk in. But he was forced by his superior officers to arrest him. And on May 16th, Dirk Willemzoon, you haven't probably heard of him, he was burned at the stake because he believed in Jesus. Quotes, under the most lingering torture, end quotes. Is that natural? What he did? That is love for enemies. Love for enemies does good. What about in our lives? Who's your enemy? What good is God calling us to do to our enemy? What tangible good? Because first things first, love does Good. Secondly, the second action is not just physical action, but sometimes actions are words. Number two, love blesses. Love blesses. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. You know, when someone says something discouraging to you, maligns you, ruins your reputation, kids, rips on you calls you names, you just want to do something about it. You just want to set them in their place. What they've said happens in marriages all the time. Set them in their place. Make them feel the same kind of pain that they have given to you, but not so the believer. 
Because the Spirit of Christ is within and produces in our mouths and in our hearts a desire to actually bless those who curse us. It's impossible. It's countercultural. Even in that day, in that culture, the Essenes made a big deal about cursing enemies. It was part of, in fact, you couldn't join the Essenes religious group of the Jews unless you were willing to curse the infidels. This is absolutely countercultural in Jesus' day in strict Judaism. But those who have an ears to hear Jesus, true disciples, he says, listen to me, he says, love blesses your enemies. And that's so hard. It's impossible in the flesh. We want payback. We, we do. We want payback. We're quick to tear down even those we love in our lives. But Jesus says, speak this way towards our enemies. And we're just left praying, Lord, if this is for us, we need, I just need your help. That's why we pray the words that I've opened the sermon with. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We can't do this. This is supernatural love. But this is the manifestation of genuine discipleship that Jesus brings. Secondly, then, love blesses. But love continues to speak. Third, action of love for enemies. Love prays. Love prays. And then third, pray for those who mistreat you. Check out your Bible. If you have the ESV, maybe it says something different than mistreat. It's a very harsh and strong word. The best Greek lexicon, which is where we get definitions of Greek words, the best Greek lexicon defines the word that the New American Standard translates mistreat as this, quotes, to treat someone in a, dis in a despicable manner. Threaten. Mistreat. Abuse, in quotes. That's the strength of this word. Love praise for this one? Seriously? On Wednesday nights, we, we're learning to pray, and Pastor Dan has been helping us to, you know, as we pray together, we pray upward in adoration and praise of God. Remember, we pray inward as we're confessing our sin and asking. Got a medical emergency. Father, I pray for our brother. I pray for the team that now helps him the people who will come to help him, I ask, Lord, that you would intervene right now and give us wisdom. Lord, I thank you that you're here now. I pray for your help. In Christ's name, amen. So we pray upwardly, adoring Christ, 
as Dan has taught us, we pray inwardly, we confess our own sin, and we ask for help, and we beg God for help. Upward, inward, but we also pray outward, remember? And that's where we come to the prayer requests in the church, and we pray for the the requests of this fellowship, we pray for our brothers and sisters in this church, we pray for our missionaries, but let's add to it, let's add to it, we also pray outward for our enemies, for our enemies. Do we pray for Biden if you don't like him? Do you pray for your boss who, or that person at work who is constantly picking on you, persecuting you for your stand for Jesus, also not allowing you to ever get ahead? Kids, do you pray for that person at school who hit you and then tells you, bless his heart, that you're ugly and short? The response of a believer is to pray for that one. It's radical. It's otherworldly. It's supernatural, true discipleship kind of stuff. Pray for those who mistreat you in despicable ways, the text says. Prayer for people is the most powerful way that we cultivate our own hearts of love for people. We stop and pray for them. The most loving thing that we can do for anyone is to pray for them. If you begin to pray for your enemies, they cannot stay enemies much longer. If the Spirit is working that prayer, it changes you from the inside out. Pray for your enemies. It is impossible, as Kent Hughes says, I think it's true, at least eventually, it's impossible to truly pray for someone and hate them at the same time. Our Lord Jesus Christ, upon the cross of Calvary, naked, bloodied beyond recognition, abused, Ridiculed, mocked, falsely accused, rejected, abandoned. How did he love? Luke 23, verse 34, Father. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Here's what love looks like. Love in action, love does good, love blesses, and love prays. If you think this was radical, then we haven't even gotten to the good stuff. Because love is stated, the actions are stated, but then love's actions are illustrated in our next point. And there's four illustrations, I think, that colorfully show love in action. And if you think about these... And I think John MacArthur's right to point this out. They're, they're actions, but in many ways, these four illustrations are reactions because our enemies are on the offensive. Our enemies are coming after us. And so there's always an attack that's implicit in that word enemy. It's, we're at least inconvenienced by our enemies, but usually it's downright evil. 
Verse 29, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Now listen, listen carefully. What does conventional wisdom teach us to do? Come on. Yes, conventional reactions. Conventional reaction, when someone hits you on the cheek, you smack them back in the face. I call that little house in the prairie theology. You can just think about that. Someone takes away your coat, and you grab your coat, and you pull it back to yourself. My coat. Or if someone takes away what is yours, you may have to go to the lawyers to get it back. It's conventional wisdom. But Jesus isn't talking about conventional wisdom. He's talking about supernatural love. Now, let's talk about how literally, because I know what you're thinking. You don't take this literally. Let's talk about how literally we're to take these commands. Okay. Jesus is not saying that there's not a proper time for self-defense. We have to look at the whole Bible. Jesus is trying to make a stark point to those immersed, immersed into making it a virtue of hating their enemies under the guise of religion. He's trying to make a stark point. He's trying to capture our attention, trying to shock our, his listeners to give a vivid contrast uh, to the way they've always thought, to conventional wisdom, the way they've always even been taught by the, by the rabbis, to radically redefine the character and nature of love. I think McKinley, one pastor, is absolutely correct. He says, quotes, Jesus, it seems, is speaking in extreme terms in order to make a serious point about the way his followers love End quote. So let me see if we can unpack this and let's look at these four illustrations uh, where love's actions are illustrated. Number one, when your face is struck. Number one, when your face is struck. Verse 29, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Now, I don't think this is saying if someone walks in the door of your house at two in the morning and you're up and then smacks you in the jaw, which that you pick yourself up and offer the other side. I don't think that's what this is saying. However, this is a shocking illustration about love. Love doesn't sit and defend its rights. Love does not sit and try to protect and isolate and refuse and hold back and never go back to that toxicity. That's not what love does. That is not the nature of love. This kind of love is willing to forgive. This, this kind of love is, to, is able to go to a person who has harmed you and still be there, still be willing to offer help, even if it means being slapped again. We don't have to take it literally to get the principle, the literal principle here. I like what one has said, quotes, love is available, vulnerable, and subject to repeated abuse, end quotes. What? 
MacArthur says, well, quotes, to accept hostility and ill treatment without hatred or retaliation and to show love in turn, end quotes. Let's keep going because these build. Second illustration of love for enemies, when your coat is taken, someone takes your coat. So the background of the coat thing is that in that day you have an outer garment and you have an undershirt. And he's just saying if someone robs you of your outer garment, let him take your undergarment. Here's the principle. As one has said, quotes, one should not seek revenge but remain intentionally vulnerable to a second attack, end quotes. Loving your enemies, there's no retaliation. There's no retaliation. That is certainly true, but it's more. It's not only no retaliation. There, there is these factors, what has happened to you to, with your enemy doesn't stop you from loving and doing good and blessing and praying for them. It doesn't halt it. It doesn't stop it. You're there for more. I didn't write this. Number three, shocking illustration. Number three, when you're asked for a loan. Give to everyone who asks of you. Stop there. Give to everyone who asks of you. Due to the choice of words, this is, you know, someone kind of maybe asking for help, um, wanting to borrow from you. Maybe it's supplies. Maybe it's um, time. Maybe it's money and finances. Perhaps genuine needs. Perhaps not. It's hard to discern. Could be needs from anyone. The text isn't clear. But you need to be ready without prejudice to meet needs. You say, well, they're going to take advantage of my generosity. No matter, but as love says, no matter, even if they can't repay the loan, they have a genuine need, and I'm going to love them. I will meet their need. That's the principle here of love for enemies. Enemies. It's generous. It's generous without strings. Love towards others at great cost to yourself. It's starting to make some sense. Jesus' illustrations are good. They're real. Fourth, when you're robbed of your valuables. If you weren't certain about the last one, how about this one? When you're robbed of valuables, whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. So this goes beyond asking for a loan to outright robbery. Now, if we weren't certain about the last one being our enemy, this one certainly is. It's robbery. Only enemies will rob us, typically. But the principle here is love them, do good to them, don't get even with them. Real love does not retaliate. Lenski is right, quotes, the disciple loses less by letting his things be taken wrongfully than he would with a selfish heart clamoring to have them returned, In quotes. Now again, don't, how can I take, do I take this literally? I, look, there's a literal principle here that's shocking. It's not to be taken a wooden literally. If your car gets stolen, give Thor a call. Okay, let's be clear. But Jesus is serious about this. There's a serious, real principle here 
that it's not a joke. And we got to get to the heart of it. It's not wooden literalism. Let's do a children's example. That always helps. Because then we can apply it to adults. Kids, you're playing together. you got your Lego set. If another kid who is playing with you takes your Lego set, perhaps you ask them nicely for that Lego set back, but the love of Jesus in you says, well, maybe they need it more than I do, and lets them enjoy it because you're considering them better than yourself, and you're just going to trust God and ask mommy for another Lego set. Oh, we can laugh at that. What about us adults? Right? That's for them. What about us? It's the same principle. We got bigger toys. We got bigger lawyers. It's the same principle. There's, here's the principle. There's an attitude here. There's a selflessness. There's a consideration of the other's benefit. There's a radom, uh, radical kingdom love that does not seek revenge, that does not retaliate, instead is ready to do good, to bless, and to pray. This is the very heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. And following Him, empowered by His Spirit, it is the very heart of of genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. For Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.23, who while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Love for one's enemies is all about action. Stretching yourself out for others at great cost to yourself. The action of love is stated and illustrated by Jesus. But in these illustrations, if we're not going to take them woodenly and literally, there's a real point in principle there. And it begins to crystallize as each one of those four builds. And that's where Jesus goes. He moves from love's actions to that underlying principle, that underlying heart attitude. Number two then gets to the very heart of all four of these illustrations in the principle of what I would entitle love's attitude, number two, or the famous golden rule. (laughs) Here we are. The famous golden rule, verse 31, treat others the same way you want to treat them. You say, I don't know how to take those shocking illustrations. Here's how you take them. You take them like the golden rule. That's the underlying attitude and principle of them that drives our interpretation. So what does that mean then? Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. This is not normal human morality. You say, yes, it is. Let me explain what I just said. It's not. Why? Well, there's a kernel of this found in the law. Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, okay? But this is our enemy that Jesus speaks of. But when you see principles like the golden rule in other, other literature by other gurus, right? It's always spoken of negatively. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Let me, let me explain. This is important. Do not do this to others. Do not do to others what you do not want be uh, done to you. Did you hear what I said? Now, it's always spoken of the negative. 
Rabbi Hillel, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. Confucius, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. The Greek philosopher Isocrates, do not do to others that which angers you when they do it to you. But in the context of love for enemies, for Jesus, it's not stated in the negative. It's not normal human morality. It's stated in the positive. It's emphatic. The underlying attitude of love for enemies is positive and emphatic. The the love of Jesus that he speaks of is not about self-protection. So no bad will come to you so that you'll be comfortable, so that you'll be left alone and isolated from the world. Because the negatives are like that. Now, if I don't do this, and then they don't, won't do this. In other words, they'll stay out of my life, leave me alone, and not hurt me. Because love is about protecting me. But not Jesus. Do not confuse the other golden rules with the golden rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. His is positive. His is emphatic. And as Bach notes, it's a concern for others. Not for self-protection, but it's a selfless love. This is how you treat people regardless of how they treat you back, evil or no evil. You bless them because you would want them to bless you. Would you want others to show you grace when you sin against them? Do this for others. Do you want others to be kind to you when you are short and rude to them? Do this to others. Do you want others to be merciful to you if you blow it yet again? You blow it yet again. Do this. For others. Do you want someone to show mercy to others if you need help and you can't and you, and you can't pay them back or you forget to pay them back and you just need mercy? Do this for others. Would you want someone to give you the benefit of the doubt? When, when they think that you are ignoring them or giving them a bad look? Would you want them to give you the benefit of the doubt? Do this for others. Would you want others to be slow to judge your motives when apparently you don't care about them or have dropped the ball? Do this for others. Do you, would you want someone to forgive you when you've sinned against them and hurt them? Do this for others. And on and on it goes. Don't just do this for others because you're thinking of people in your family. You're thinking of people in the church. Amen. This is for enemies. Do this for your enemies. This is the evidence of true discipleship. This is the evidence of a new heart. This is supernatural love that flows out of a heart of love for God. This is the reality of love, actions stated and illustrated, and then the very heart of it, love's attitude. Kent Hughes tells a story 
I was going to get Ursula to help me pronounce the name, but I forgot. Bobby and Danielle could have helped me as well. Had so many options. <laughs> Please love me anyways. <laughs> Kent Hughes tells a story set after the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989. The Berlin Wall went down. At that time, the most despised individual in all of East Germany was the former communist dictator, Erich Honecker. All God's people. <laughs> the Berlin Wall collapsed, and, and this communist dictator after the collapse, was stripped of all of his power, all of his offices. He was even rejected, believe it or not, by the Communist Party. He was kicked out of his home, and the new government in East Germany refused to give him a place to stay in his own country. So, Eric and his wife were homeless and completely destitute in their own country after the fall. Didn't they deserve it? Well, enter into this drama, Pastor Holmer. He was a director of a Christian help center north of Berlin. He was made aware of the situation of the Hanukkahs, and Pastor Holmer believed it would be wrong to give them a room in their Christian help center if there were even more needy people around because he had limited resources. So they did the unthinkable. The pastor and his family made the decision to take the former dictator and his wife into their own home. Now, hear me for a second. Erich's wife, Margot, had presided over the East German educational system for 26 years. And eight of her, ten, her and Pastor Homer's ten kids, eight out of ten were turned down for higher education due to the policies of Margot as they purposely discriminated against Christians. Now the Homer family was meeting the needs and caring for their very personal enemy, the one who had done their family so much harm. They were caring for them. They were loving the most hated man in Germany at the time. Christians were. This is love for the enemies. This is positive good and blessing at great cost to self. This is unique. This is unconventional. This is unnatural. You've got stories. You've heard of stories of this love that flows from faith in Jesus. But what's our story? What's our story? What's our opportunity to love our enemies? By His grace, we can have a testimony in our own lives of love for enemies. I know it's impossible. I know it's supernatural. Was there anything in that dictator to draw out the love of that pastor? Was there anything in him to draw it out? Was he lovable? Did he earn love? Is there any, was there anything in you to draw out God's love so that he would send his one and only son to die for you? Was there anything in you that commended his love towards you? 
But that's what's so amazing about his love. That's what's so supernatural about his love. There is nothing, whatever in us, to attract his love, to prompt his love. There's nothing beautiful in us, nothing lovely in us to commend his love. And he loved us before we had an ounce of love for him. There's nothing in me to attract the love of God. I'm trying to say this clearly. Absolutely nothing. On the contrary, there was everything for him to despise me, to loathe me to repulse me, sinful and corrupt, no good in me, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Our best works are filthy rigs before a holy God. And yet He loves us. And yet He chose us to save us. Let me give you an illustration. My first date with my wife, I was taken by her. I had a halo on, I had broken my neck, long story. (laughs) Taken by her long red hair, her smile, her contagious laugh, I was drawn to her, I was so happy I got a second date. It did not happen this way on my first date. Here's how it did not happen, okay? I met Jody. She had bad breath, an obnoxious laugh, a self-centered personality. And by the end of the day, I'm like, I'm going to marry this girl. No, that's not how it happened. Which one of those illustrations best describes the love of God for us? Which one? Why does he love us? Not because we are lovable. He loves me because in His grace, He chose to, and then He acted upon it. He acted upon it to love fallen and unworthy sinful people. I hope this makes Romans 5, 8 pop, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Jesus Christ hung there upon the cross for you, he was loving you, his enemy, his enemy. Genuine disciples have Christ within. The very love of Christ. Is this kind of love possible apart from the power of Christ? Is this love for enemies produced by mere discipline? Do we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and love this way? Why do we love like this? What is our motivation to love like this? You have to come back next week and find out. The reason for love. Update that Brother John is responsive. He's taken for medical checks right now. So thank you, Lord, for the answer to that prayer and for the, for the, respo- the response team. Let's go to prayer for John and that this message would impact our heart as we get ready to sing to close.